Did you know that Navajo Nation is a Native American indigenous tribe whose land area is larger than that of West Virginia, yet only has one-tenth the population? This is the Lovers for Change podcast. My name is Jimmy Gia. Today's guest is Suzanne Singer, founder and chief engineer of Native Renewables, an organization that brings renewable solar energy to the 15,000 tribal homes that live off the electric grid. We talked about how does one translate technical language about solar panels into Navajo? What are the cultural values embedded into Native Renewables? And what was it like transitioning from being a researcher at a national lab to being an entrepreneur? Now let's listen to how the lessons learned from being off-grid can educate us in our path to net zero. Well, Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us today and being part of our podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I wanted to start with a quote from Mother Teresa. I alone cannot change the world, but I can cast a stone across the water to create many ripples. What are the ripples that you're creating inside of your community? So I am, as part of the co-founder of Native Renewables, we have a few different areas that we're really working towards. Um, one is we're trying to support and uplift the transition to renewable energy in our communities. One reason for doing that is because there's a huge energy access issue in Navajo Nation and within other Native Indigenous communities. And so to help address that energy access, we want to bring renewable technology, more specifically off-grid solar energy, to these communities to help you know, provide electricity in the evening. And ideally, that leads to, I'll say, a rippling effect of productivity at night. If people want them, students can charge their devices. When they need to, people can charge their cell phones you know, for emergency response reasons and also critically important in this time is to have refrigeration for food or medicine and that sort of thing. And I think most people don't know about the lack of access that are on Navajo Nation and some of these reservations. Could you speak a little bit to the context that you're functioning within? Yeah, absolutely. I myself, I'm a member of the Navajo Nation, as we say in our language, the people and our community is a reservation the size of West Virginia, so it's 27,000 square miles. It's pretty common for a lot of families to live remotely. So my grandparents, for example, live many miles away from their nearest neighbor. And there's approximately 15,000 homes on Navajo that don't have electricity currently, grid-tied electricity. So some of the means to have some sort of power for lighting, for example, people have resorted to kerosene lamps. They use sort of the camping propane lanterns. Sometimes people will have generators, uh, which require either gasoline or diesel fuel. Some folks have propane refrigerators or propane stoves if they do have refrigeration. Uh, in some cases, people just have ice chests. So they have to go to the store regularly every day or every other day to go get ice to help keep their food cold. The other challenge for some of these communities or some of these homes is that they're also quite a bit of drive away from a lot of these resources. The time commitment to be able to go get ice or fuel or supplies that help support any electricity or refrigeration can be quite a distance away. So it's a big time commitment. One of the other things we're working on is trying to provide education and training in our communities so, for example, we'll have one-day events on what does it mean to have solar energy for families who are interested in solar energy. We'll also have workforce training, so trying to educate our people to do maintenance on systems, be able to change out batteries, and also to be able to install systems to be able to support renewable energy or clean energy economy that we're hoping to build. Thank you for that. When we did our prep call, you talked about the four values that you and your founders embedded into Native Renewables. Can you speak to those four values and how they've become a framework for decision-making? Yeah. When we first started, we reached out to a former colleague of mine, Jennifer Granada, who actually happened to be in the solar industry at the time, around that time. 
And she helped us go through a whole planning process of figuring out what are the things we need to accomplish to meet our goals, figuring out what our goals were, figuring out what our values were collectively as an organization. And that's been incredibly helpful so far. So the four that we came up with, um, one is engagement. And so that's heavily educating the community through outreach and hosting these events and providing technical training because we really want to provide knowledge for all of the indigenous communities. Part of the motivation behind that is off-grid solar can be incredibly useful, but if you use it properly only. We have to really educate folks that with the size of system we're using, so 2.3 kilowatt, for example, you can't go out and buy a washer or a dryer or anything very energy intensive and expect it to last a long time. So there are limitations to it. The second value that we have is tribal sustainability. Part of that is thinking about energy independence as a tribal nation, as a home community, be able to have that energy and manage it for yourself as needed. There's also It also encompasses sustainability of our resources, um, our culture, and then also sustainably building, I'll say, an economy or a workforce to continue doing this in the future. The third value that we have is regenerative culture, and that's mainly guided by traditional knowledge. So we want to, I think, celebrate our uniqueness and our rich traditions and heritage as Native people And so as much as we can, we like to incorporate language and some of the teachings around the sun in our traditional stories into how we're educating and how we're learning. The last value I say is to have a thriving organization. So through that is we want to build partnerships and we want to have trusting relationships with our partners. Um, We want to have something that thrives in the community so we can continue to build I'll say economy many times probably, but you know, be able to build jobs within our communities that are local. I know there's a lot of young people who leave the reservation, they'll go out and they'll get jobs and a lot of times they want to come back, but it's, it can be challenging to try to find opportunities back home. But I think also as part of the thriving organization is we want to have clear, you know, build towards clear communication within our organization and outside building manageable expectations to meet our goals. For sure. It is sometimes very hard to leave your place of growing up only to realize that once the career has developed, that it's really hard to go back home again. You've made it home after a career at Lawrence Livermore doing work on thermoelectric research for many years. How did you find that transition going from a national lab and being a a postdoc and a PhD researcher to an entrepreneur and running your own company? Yeah, it's been really interesting. The story, I'll say the founding story of Native Renewables, I was fortunate to go to Navajo had an energy summit in 2014. And I think so far, it's been the only one that has existed or has happened on Navajo under that name. So there was a lot of different folks there, representatives of the community. And I was having dinner with my colleagues, happened to meet um, our now executive director, Wahila Johns, and she was eating in the same restaurant. And I had probably met her once before that, but also knew the person she was eating dinner with. And I just happened to have something written about me, which she read, and we caught up a little bit. And we're like, hey, we should catch up. Let's talk more about energy. So I was in Oakland, living in Oakland at the time, and she was one neighborhood away. And it was kind of amazing. We're like, oh, wow, this is really cool. So we spent, man, I don't remember how many months we spent, but just kind of talking about, you know, what would be like if we moved back home, the needs of our communities. And at some point she was like, hey, let's, let's just start an organization. Let's try to figure this out. So that was in 2016. And at the time I was still full-time at the lab and I was like, this is great. I'll do nights and weekends. We'll work on it. And then while I was at the lab, I had an opportunity to do the, there was an energy i program that was based on the NSF i program that's, that was housed within the Department of Energy. And for that, I was able to, I think my job title was something like entrepreneurial lead. So I was helping one of the scientists at the lab try to develop a business plan for how to take her technology out into the industry, out into the world. 
And I knew nothing about her technology when I started. So that was a huge learning curve. And it was really, it was a lot of work putting together a business pitch. And I think like six weeks or something, and we still had to do our regular jobs. And it was super intense, but I learned a lot about learning how to pitch your concept and ideas, especially as a, a researcher or a scientist. So it's like completely different from giving a research proposal or presentation. And it's very much more thinking about the practicalities of being out in the world and tying in money and manufacturing and all of this other fun stuff. Some of that learning from that experience helped me in the business, just kind of thinking, becoming more familiar with business concepts. And then since then, I've been a part of probably, let's see, at least two to three different business programs. Since then, two of them were focused on Native women entrepreneur training, which has been really amazing. Learning from that is also like how to read your financials statements. What does that mean? Coming up with your own budgets, your startup budgets, and so you get all the kind of details of making a business run more streamlined and instead of just going and trying to learn it on the fly. Yeah, for sure. And the I-Corps program were developed by the National Science Foundation and Department of Energy specifically to help researchers explore the entrepreneurial activities that are around their research and to be able to put those two together. There's the difference, I think, between book smarts and street smarts. And certainly the PhD and your work at the national labs is very much book smarts. And now as an entrepreneur, you have to gain those street smarts. So how do you think the, that i program helps you navigate between those two? I would say one of the more critical <laughs> learnings is that you can't have everything perfect before you have to go or move or make a decision. Sometimes as STEM people, we're characterized as people who want to know all the answers before we make a decision. So for myself, yes, I think that was probably more true. But I think as I move forward now, it's learning how to, I think, make decisions quicker. They always tell you fail fast. So try things out and quickly pivot as you adapt. I think being comfortable talking about money and thinking more in terms of budgets, is it possible to make this happen with the funding that you have or that you're requesting? Trying to get away from all the the really deep details and trying to have those all, all narrowed down before you move forward. I've gotten away from that quite a bit and sometimes I think too much, but it's it's a balance. So now I think some of my things, I like to have like lots of technical answers, but in this point, more important to me is like, what does our supply chain look like? What's the availability? Yes, does it work with our system? But like, what's the cost? Can we get it now? Will it fit? So it's a lot more, I'll say, logistical questions as opposed to technical questions. I wanted to dive in a little bit on the regenerative cultural value that you talked about and using that cultural knowledge of the nation, and especially the language and the translations. There's the stories of the sun that are within the tribe, and also there's lots of people who still speak traditional Navajo and the traditional languages. How do you translate the technical languages from a solar panel, solar PV, into something that makes sense and is adaptable by then? Yeah, sometimes that can be challenging. One example is some people will explain electricity as a form of lightning. And I know for some folks, that's very incredibly scary. It's like you don't want lightning in your home. One of the effective ways that I've seen, and I'm not fluent in Navajo, so again, it's because it's a little bit more challenging. But one of the most effective ways I've seen is to relate it to water. Analogy for electricity through explaining water flows and pressures and quantities and the flow rates that people can really understand. And I think as a lot of our people were, are like sheep herders, have cattle or they're farmers, water is a huge value and it's so dry in many areas on the res. So we value water so much. So I think explaining it in that way um, makes it a lot easier to understand. Sometimes there's not direct translations for things, so it can take a while to explain something. I think having images or pictures as visual for visual learners can go a long way. As long as we can get across the huge concept of 
please don't plug in everything or, you know, we help them understand, do not plug in. If you can, please don't plug in a space heater. I think that goes a long way for, you know, some families, that's all they want. They want to do and don't list. They want a very hard, hard line. And sometimes that actually is quite challenging because some people would tell us, well, how big a system do you need for two bedrooms? And it answers always, it depends. What are you using? How long are you using it for? What model is it? So it's much more in depth than I think people initially think or want or actually think about. So also that training education too is really important and saying it's much more detailed answer than you want. And I'm sorry, I know you want (laughs) to, I know you want a hard answer, but to be fair to you, that doesn't exist. You're pointing out something which is solar energy, solar panel, solar systems are sold in some ways as a panacea of just install this and your home will run. But if you're off grid and you don't have the rest of the electric grid to back you up, essentially, that solar system is all you get. And there are limitations to that. What have you found in your experience at Native Renewables that solar is really good at solving in off grid? And where are some of the things where it's still lacking? I think the people who are... I don't want to say respect it, but the people who understand the concept of limiting your use, they've had their systems for more than 10 years, sometimes 20 years. And batteries, if you don't, people don't understand their use and they over, I'll say overextend their system, their batteries sometimes will last two years. We've seen people in the field who take really good care of it and also manage their loads well, their energy loads well. They have had their batteries for like 10, 12 years in some cases, which is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, so I think providing lighting is always great. It does that very well. Again, part of the education, if they use low wattage bulbs or LEDs, it's been pretty good for refrigeration for some of the installs that we've we've done and we've seen. The size that we're looking at, they've been able to handle TVs and like cell phone charging uh, laptops, that sort of thing, powering up satellite devices. One of the harder or the more stressful situations we've seen it being put under is like at Super Bowl time, everybody comes over, they plug in like two space heaters, they try to use a crock pot. So anything with a heating element that draws a lot of power, it tends to become an issue. In the past few years, have had two megawatt scale installs, and we personally were not involved in that. We've gotten to tour it. Those have been pretty amazing to see for people to see what the potential is for larger scale. I know there's more that other folks are trying to develop and deploy. We've seen a few community buildings have solar embedded on them, and for some of them, like the power that they're saving is so well worth it. We haven't gotten too much into water pumping, but I know there's a lot of like ranchers and farmers that do want to have water pumping capabilities. What are some of the constraints you've had to operate in as a business? Man, doing work in rural areas can be extremely challenging. I think one is the, I'll, I'll categorize it as logistics, but sometimes we'll have to drive, let's say, two and a half hours one way it's on a dirt road. Sometimes we're not completely familiar with the dirt road in that area. So if we're lucky, we'll meet someone who can tell us exactly which is the best dirt road to take. Google Maps doesn't quite work when you're out that far, right? <laughs> no, not so much. In the winter time, for example, we did one install. Actually, a lot of ours has been in the winter, which is kind of crazy. What we'll have to plan to do is in the morning, like, hey, we have to get out there before the ground freezes. We've had one day, one that was a few days long where we were training people. So we were like, yep, as soon as the ground gets hard, let's get out there. So we've definitely gotten like vehicles stuck in the mud when it melts. So the roads can be kind of challenging. The lack of Internet and cell phone reception sometimes is is really challenging, and of course that becomes can be like a safety issue. Uh, if you have an emergency, then having some kind of plan to be able to address that, having a map, and this is something we're building out, but having maps of the nearest medical facilities. Sometimes, <laughs> one time we had a we had an install with like three or four different partners and vehicles and. 
at some point we had to, we got separated because we needed, someone forgot a tool at a house. So we, someone, someone had to go drive back. Someone else went, drove to a border town, which was probably like an hour away to go get a new tool just in case it wasn't at that house. If we forget parts, like it's a nightmare because there's no like Home Depots out there. And so sometimes we'll have to like find the tallest hill to try to call people sometimes because wherever we are, maybe it doesn't have reception or like you hike up to the tallest hill to see if you can get cell phone coverage out there. So planning is really critical and having extra parts and make sure your batteries are charged. You have extra batteries. I won't say it's a challenge, but something we have to be mindful of is, you know, if we have to talk to a family in both Navajo and English, it takes twice as long to do the education piece. So trying to be, I don't know if efficient is the right word, but you know, if we wanted to be efficient, that adds on extra time. The pricing also is a, is a huge barrier for a lot of families. Batteries and storage are expensive. Sometimes families can't afford to pay for the entire equipment. There's not a lot of options for financing. That's our hope in the future to be able to get that as an option out in the communities. But um, right now, just getting power can be extremely expensive. Even getting grid tied power for some people can be really expensive. Extending power lines just to power one home um, sometimes is not really financially feasible. I wanted to expand a little bit on planning diligence and mindfulness, especially as you have to be that way, you know, like the example you gave with the tools, you have to be very planning and diligent and mindful of how you go and do these installs. How have you found your relationship with energy shift now that you have to be much more mindful of it? It's been really interesting. One of the fun things that I've been doing lately and trying to build out a database is one of our staff members that we were fortunate to hire, Deb Tiwa, has been doing off-grid solar for many years, like 20 or 30 years or something. She's also an educator. So one of the things she had us do early on was use like kilowatt meters. So it's a little device where you plug in your appliances and it tells you how many kilowatt hours over what time, um, what's your voltage and your current draw. So I think that's been interesting to see what kind of appliances I have. I mean, I, I'm fortunate to have electricity and grid tie electricity where I am, but it's been interesting to see what, like what devices and trying to figure out, and this is, again, there's no yes or no, it makes it challenging. What kind of devices I could use? Do I want to use a Electrical coffee grinder, probably not. One of the recommendations from her was if you're using a coffee maker, like make your coffee, turn it off, unplug it, put it in a thermos. So you're not leaving, that heating element is not continually working. You're just keeping your coffee warm. So the other thing I think it's been interesting is always a fun activity to watch is when we have our one day trainings, she'll have the people make a list of everything they want to power or maybe everything they are powering if they do have some form of grid tied electricity and then we'll calculate how much energy they're consuming and then she has them work through how many solar modules they have to buy how many batteries they have to buy and then she puts a cost to everything and it's pretty fascinating to see them that's insane I would never buy that so then she's like all right now that you know how much it costs start to take things away so I just think that's a really such an eye-opening exercise for people just, you know, thinking about a lot of it's tied to money. Like, what can you afford? And of course, being able to plug in things is tied to that very much so for the off-grid world. You know, in the U.S., we don't talk as much about energy poverty, which is a subset of poverty. Poverty being below a particular income level, but energy poverty being a percentage of your income being spent on energy. You could still be a middle-class income person, but if 10 to 25% of your disposable income is being spent on energy, you're still considered to be in energy poverty. Do you see a difference in your community, a difference between poverty and energy poverty? And is your approach to the two the same or slightly different? I would say they overlap, maybe not the same, but they have play some role. I wish I could remember off the top of my head, but I feel like I've seen some Native communities, maybe up in Alaska, that spend like 50% of their, or maybe a little bit higher even, on of their income on energy costs, which is 
which is nuts. Just as a baseline for the listeners, an average U.S. consumer is around 1% to 3%. So 10 to 20%, 50%, this gets really high into the household budget. Absolutely. Some of the ways we've seen that impact low-income, how homes or low-income communities is you just can't afford to pay for your electric bills. So, you know, some people do have electricity, but because the cost, well, maybe I shouldn't, maybe that's not a fair comparison off for grid tide. I guess if your income is not that high to begin with, it becomes really hard to pay for your energy expenses. And if you're off grid, then you also have to invest in getting firewood. You know, that can, depending on your resources, that can add up. Like if you don't have the manpower to go get out and get a permit and go cut down firewood for yourself, which is probably maybe, maybe the most cost effective way, then you have to either go out and buy it and, you know, at a cost. And I got to be honest, I don't really remember off the top of my head what the costs are for that. And I'm sort of getting into the weeds here, but <laughs> I guess the point is it becomes one of those things where you have to decide if you want to pay for power or you pay for food, which is probably you're going to choose food. I would say a few of the ways that we're working on that is in terms of trying to create job opportunities. And it can be limited depending on what our what our capacity is or like what our funding looks like. But I think creating those opportunities in the community is always important for us. And also finding affordable ways to provide off-grid power. And that's always a challenge for us as well. It becomes this debate of, do we provide these resources for free? The pro is if folks can't afford it, then it would give them opportunity to have power. If they can't afford it, do we have them invest in their own equipment so that in theory, they'll take better care of it, maybe, um, or they have some ownership over it. So these are sort of all, I think, hard, hard questions and things we have to, we're still sort of figuring out. And then also what qualifies as a person in need, like I think for a lot of our elders, we don't want to charge them. So then we have to spend a lot more time trying to fundraise to get equipment. And that was always, always hard because everything's so expensive. And there's so many people that need power. In this past three or four months, I think one way we've been able to help, although not in as big a way as I think we would hope, we've been able to provide or donate some camping lights to families, elder families without power, um, cell phone chargers and lighting. So at the, at the very least, to some of the folks in our communities, there's some great COVID relief group distribution groups out in our communities. And so we've been working with several of them to help us distribute and outreach to the folks in need that just need lighting and cell phone charging. It makes the uh, problem slightly simpler when you're able to reduce it to just lighting and cell phone charging. Huh? Yeah, exactly. You've been installing these solar systems for quite some time now. What are some aha moments that you've seen in clients when they get it? Uh, some of the cooler things are like, you see them turn on a light, like just kind of their face. They get really excited to have power for the first time. One of my favorite installs, there was two young boys there and they were really curious. So they would kind of watch us as we were doing the install. You know, they would ask questions while we were there. We learned that they were just really excited to watch a movie because they had been using a generator and the generator would typically run about halfway through the movie, it would run out of gas. So I think what they said to one of their parents was like, oh, we can watch a movie all the way through for the first time. Wow. <laughs> so so it's cute, like these little things that happen. Other things I think are kind of neat are one install that we did, the person that lives there, there was a power outage in their community. And so some of the homes were connected to electricity and some weren't they had power during the power outage. So all their neighbors would come over or not all their neighbors, some of their neighbors would come over and they were just really curious about what was happening. So I think it also creates that sense of curiosity too. Anytime that those kind of things like happen whenever there's issues, power issues, as Deb, our educator tells people, you know, sometimes our villages or communities are at the end of the the line for power. So if something happens upstream, like they're going to be the first to be impacted. 
going one step further than just that aha moment, have you ever seen a client effectively take ownership of the solution such that they start improving it and doing their own customizations on top of it? Not the ones that we've done. I'll say one of the things that has been neat with one of the families is they want to try plugging in something new. So they'll ask us, hey, I want to plug in my vacuum cleaner. Can I do it? Right. Some of these things are things that we have not calculated for. So we're like, all right, we'll get back to you. <laughs> right, we'll, we'll talk about it and get back to you. So that, that's been kind of neat. And then someone else is like, hey, can I plug in a sewing machine? And so thinking about new, I won't say new uses, but uses that we had not considered for these systems, it's been interesting. Learned about it and you know, getting our little kilowatt meter and testing it out on devices that we have or that our relatives have be able to figure out if it is possible or doable. And I've also been trying to like drag my family into helping me do the kilowatt <laughs> the kilowatt meter testing. And I'm not sure that they love it, but it helps me a lot. Now that you've been in small business for quite some time, how do you see innovation differ from your time at the national labs to working on the ground and with a bunch of individuals? Yeah, it's really interesting working in the off-grid solar world it's kind of funny. This technology has been around for 30 years, maybe longer. So it's interesting, a little bit sad that this is still not happened on a large scale within our communities. And I'll say in some areas within the U.S., part of our educating outside of our own organizations is you know, helping people understand there's still a lot of people within the U.S. that don't have access to electricity. And so it's just I think that the difference being we're using older technology, which is constantly being updated, but, you know, the concept has been around for 30 plus years. So working on small advances to try to get the cost down or improvements in the system versus the lab, which is a lot of times stuff that's never been done before and trying to come up with new like modeling or methods or experiments to capture what things or how technology could advance, or what it does, or thinking more creatively about other applications for a certain technology, or a certain just the level of type of innovation is, is completely different. Like our stuff is manufactured in the U.S. We buy it, put it together, and assemble it, and we'll have some tweaks, like design tweaks here and there. Like at the lab, you're you know trying something completely different in a lot of cases, and very innovative and it's really exciting a lot of times you can't talk about it and so that I would say that's probably the biggest difference for me is just the level or what do they call it the technology readiness level of of everything and, and certainly when you're innovating here you're innovating at the last mile and it's not just it's the last inch of the last mile when you're going out to that super rural area where people are really spread out I would assume there's really no infrastructure at all. Even the roads are just dirt roads, right? It depends. So there's several cities within the nation. And there. so there, there's paved major, I'll say they're major paved two-way highway roads that travel across the reservation. And then there's a lot of families that sort of live in those concentrated cities, much like you know the rest of the country. But a lot of the rural homes can have dirt roads that are that kind of shoot off of it into different homesteads. And so that that's the challenging infrastructure. The sheer size of the reservation and the number of roads makes it hard to, I mean, it's a hard problem for them to solve as well, like the transportation challenges that exist there, the infrastructure challenges. Um, so the size is definitely, we like having space, but it makes it hard to do things efficiently. Well, you know, a lot of people, I think, in the urbanized neighborhoods talk of net zero as a, a goal that they would like to achieve. And it's meant to be an aspirational goal. And yet with your work, it's net zero, period, because there is no grid. What are some lessons learned that you would adopt to say, this is what you have to do to build a net zero home, a net zero neighborhood? One of the things I think it's really important and Again, this comes down to most of the time, I think a money challenge is building well-insulated homes. Programs like that are, as far as I know, far and few between. Sometimes 
programmatic money comes in, it has to be spent. And you just, you work with a traditional builder that build the kind of the traditional homes, not native traditional, but, you know, traditional across the country. I'm not sure that if we have a policy for like the R value of insulation on the reservation. And I have no idea. I have never looked into that. But I think starting with a well-designed home that doesn't bleed heat and cold or, you know, doesn't have a lot of that, those issues is a, is a good start if you have the opportunity. I mean, some people have homes built already. It makes it very challenging to insulate them in an affordable way. I think that's one of the biggest challenges we have. Sure, you can do it and you can rebuild it and, you know, or re change the insulation or do modifications. I can't think of the word where you do construction. <laughs> yeah, well, you retrofit things, but you know, it comes at a cost that comes hard. I think some organizations want to incorporate more natural materials or traditional materials into home buildings. So I think that can be an aspirational goal. Some people, we talk about energy efficiency and, and a lot of times, like I can't even talk about what we think of energy efficiency is very different because we're, we have to do everything. And some people think of it as changing light bulbs to more efficient light bulbs, which is great. It's like the low hanging fruit, but it's almost moot if you, you have to burn and oh, it translates to, I guess, firewood too. If you don't have a well-insulated home, you're burning more fuel I really liked your analogy to the firewood. I think that makes it tangible for that thermal experience. If you put the wood into your insulation, you don't need to use the wood to heat the space in your home. How does tribal governance differ from more of the familiar model? And where have you successfully integrated into that native culture and tribal culture? So if I want to learn about tribal governance, a lot of times I'll reference the National Congress of American Indian or NCAI. So they have some documentation or handbooks or guidance about what it means to be a tribal nation or have tribal governance. There's hundreds of tribal communities across the country. There's definitely more even state-recognized tribes. We are a federally recognized tribe. And so we have a certain amount of sovereignty that's associated with that. And not all tribes operate the same. They're all different. But in Navajo, we have our own court system. We have a president, executive branch. We have a legislative branch and a judicial branch that is similar to what we understand as for the U.S. We have over 100 different communities that I'll say maybe the corollary is like states to the presidential office. And then you have representatives for each of those communities. You have the 24 representatives overseeing those 100 plus communities. The governance aspect, there's different levels. So there's the local level where you work with the local community. There's also the whole nation level. And so I think as we move forward in our work or throughout our work, we do our best to try to meet with all the different levels of governance so that they know what we're doing and there's no surprises to any one of those branches on who we are and what our intentions are, ideally. The second part is, where have you successfully integrated into the, the Native culture, not just the governance, but the culture as well? So one of the cultural successes that we've had is we worked with our director, her parents, um, her dad's an artist, famous artist. Her parents put together helped us put together and create a coloring book. Part of it's in Navajo, part of it's in English, um, but it has different scenarios of why the sun is important. So important for like planting, growing, it's in our stories, the time of day. You just start to build this relationship with the sun. Um, one of the other activities we had recently was we did a virtual career fair where uh, myself and our educator, Deb, we did a presentation on Zoom, and one of the activities we had people do was they pretend that they were a solar module and that they were the tracker, and they had to track it from you know wherever they thought the sun was going. So that was, I don't know, I thought it was fun because I feel like if you're not outside or you're not a grower or farmer or you're not just kind of 
you don't wake up with the sun and it rises and you don't pay attention during the seasons, you may not necessarily know where, where south is. Like if I asked you where's south and something really that simple and understanding how the sun changes throughout the year, is it higher or lower? And trying to create the understanding of, okay, now you know where the sun is. How do you change your solar modules or your solar panel based on what you know about the nature of the sun? It's really interesting when people make that correlation. And sometimes we're not trying to <laughs> create that relationship, but they just naturally, people who are farming or they pray to the sun in the morning is innate in them. This question is from Judd Verdon who is the Associate Director of Pacific Northwest National Labs. And I think it's a question that we typically ask to the mass market, and I'm really interested in your answer looking at it from an edge of the electric grid, which is what's the key policy and financing changes that needs to occur to shift to a clean economy? I think one of the, looking forward, one of the interesting things that should happen is for the nation or nations to adopt some kind of renewable policy. Um, we have an energy policy that exists, but at this time there's no, I'll say, renewable portfolio standard or anything of that sort that has been adopted. I know some of our leaders were talking about that, but I don't know how far that discussion or conversation has gone. Um, we are, I'll say, uniquely... It, it's I could see it being challenging because we are, we being the Navajo Nation, um, is in Arizona, Utah, and New Mexico, and they all have different renewable policies and standards. So I don't know if it'll become a question of do we try to mirror any of these states or do we come up with our own in the future? Anything policy related that can just help structure or formalize processes for implementing renewable projects is always good. I know we've had some in the past in the solar projects that have happened so far. The large-scale ones have been through our local utility or our tribal utility. We get a lot of questions or I get a lot of questions about people who want to do work in tribal communities on megawatt scale. And it's a challenge because Part of it is the whole vetting process. The policies related to the use of the land can be pretty intense for folks to understand if you don't work in tribal communities. Some folks don't realize that tribal nations have their own processes for doing things. Sometimes those don't align with what people think the speed of business is. And so I know that can turn some people off. Yeah, just anything to help our leaders make informed decisions is probably a, a good thing in terms of policy. Where do you turn to for new information? It, it depends. <laughs> for new, I'll say new technologies, a few of our distributors will sometimes ask them, you know, for diversifying the supply chain, what are some of the new products that are coming out that could work for us? So far, we've built pretty good relationships with them and that they understand we are strictly, at this point, strictly off-grid. We have unique needs and that uh, some of the products won't work in off-grid situations. In terms of policies, I think there's other organizations, nonprofits, NGOs, other groups that are much more embedded in policy related to tribal energy. And one of the people that we have partnered with on one of our workforce trainings is they were one of our invited guest speakers to give our students kind of a background of the Navajo Nation energy and policy and water from their viewpoint. And some of these folks have been working for many years on energy rights and water rights and within their communities. So one other group that I have asked policy questions before the Arizona Solar Energy Industries Association, or SIA, but Arizona, the Arizona SIA. So we also, I think, follow some of the guidance from like SEI, Solar Energy International. So one other person um, that we do ask for advice sometimes is Anne-Marie Chischilly. She's the executive director of the Institute for Tribal Environmental Professionals, and she's based at Northern Arizona University. 
As you reflect back on your career, what brings you optimism about climate action? One of the changes I've noticed over my career is climate action is much more embedded in conversations that folks have at conferences, in research as well. My niece, for example, is like very much into it. So it's been interesting to see how someone junior high, high school age level is feeling about these different issues. I see a lot more involvement or things like climate marches that people are much more passionate about than, you know, I have seen in the past. Or I think the passion of young people really gets, gives me hope about, you know, change in the future, change for good. A lot of the folks that we are training and recruiting, a lot of them are young people and they're super excited. Some of my friends, my technical friends ask like, Hey, are you hiring? Cause I want to go back home. Like I actually want to do something in our community. So it's been really exciting to see how receptive people are to our mission they know it's a critical need. It has been for many years. It feels good to have that support within our, our network and even outside has been amazing. What are some unexpected collaborations you find yourself in? There's some things that our director does that it's so funny. We're so busy that sometimes she forgets to tell me it's happening. <laughs> and I help manage our social media. And so something amazing will happen on social media that I'll be like, oh, I had no idea we were doing that. <laughs> so I think sometimes those are the surprising ones and uh, things that like our director's doing that I just had no clue. So one of the surprising collaborations that happened recently was an effort put together by Ricky Reed, Nice Life, and the Solutions Project, who we've worked with before. So Ricky Reed, I think, has connections to different musical artists, including Lizzo. They and lots of other people put on different YouTube interviews, interactions, a, a record release or album release, and they were raising money for three different organizations, one of which was us. And so never did I ever imagine that we would have some kind of overlap with like musicians or actors or any of that. So I would say those have been the most surprising things that have happened is folks that are not STEM, right? STEM based people, they have very different careers than we do. When you mentor early professionals, what are some challenges, common challenges you see them facing and what do you do to advise them? So some of that challenge is for, I'll say, people in the age where they're still kind of early high school is it's been so long since I've been in high school. A lot of them will ask about scholarships. So I'll talk about my path, which was I got good grades, hence I got scholarship. It took off the pressure to have scholarships and gave you time to do well in school. So for those folks, I don't know the scholarship landscape anymore, so that makes it hard to advise them. Folks that want to go to grad school, oh man, the struggle is, is tough. <laughs> Sometimes I tell people, I don't know if I would go through grad school again. It was really hard. I mean, it's a fine line of encouraging them and, you know, telling them if they work hard, they can do it, but also being realistic that it's really, really hard and it'll consume all of you if you really get into it. I think other challenges are people that want to move or change careers. I feel like when I was at the lab, at least I could, I knew there was a, a pipeline that existed that I could do my best to help funnel them through. I'm not a big fan of the GPA requirements anywhere. I feel like some people don't have to work to do while they're going to school to support themselves and you know, ideally you can do well at everything, but I do think some people face more challenges trying to go through academics than others, and it hinders them from doing well. So I think some of the challenges for folks applying to people with GPA requirements is like, if you don't have the GPA, I don't know what to tell you for this field. So for folks that are younger, they want to work at a national lab type caliber place. Like you have to be on the ball. You have to have good grades. I shouldn't say you have to. 
you will have a much, much better chance at getting into these places if you have good grades to back it up. The other challenge for now is we have a lot of people that I think are interested in working with us. What's always interesting and sometimes challenging, I think, is trying to figure out who are the people that really believe in your mission versus there's people who work really hard, but there's also people who just need a job. I think trying to figure that out and figure out the kind of person that you want to employ can be challenging and tricky sometimes. We don't have the budget to hire all the people we want to, unfortunately. Um, if we did, it would make our my, our lives so much easier. But there's a lot of people that want to work with us, and some of them are really good people. So it's kind of a bummer when we really want to bring someone on, but we just don't have a way to pay them. One thing we're trying to do, I think, which also makes it a little bit hard on ourselves, but we've accepted it, is we want to try to pay people for their value, what they're worth. We're a nonprofit, but we're in a technical world, so... You know, some people may not think that we should be paid a whole lot, but if you're an amazing installer, we don't want to, you know, minimize your value. I think that's also really important as we invest in people too. For example, some of our trainings, we will pay people, like we'll cover their mileage, we'll give them a per diem, pay for their hotels. And it's really, you know, some of them are really happy with that whenever they go training and sometimes in other places, they get none of those things. You have to pay for it yourself. If we can't hire people, at the very least, we can put that kind of investment into people and training them. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Susanna. It was really fun talking to you and hearing some of these stories. Thanks. Yeah, it was fun talking to you, too. You have been listening to the Levers for Change podcast, where we search for who has responsibility for what when implementing change. My name is Jimmy Gia. And the music is by Sean Hart. Please subscribe to our podcast for new episodes and share with a friend. Please visit our website at www.leversforchangepodcast.com for additional episodes, books, and other resources. Thank you again. And remember, when trying to change the world, search for your levers for change. Music